digital asset world is full of experimentation. Some ideas succeed and become the next big thing, but many do not. How do we tell what ideas might or might not work? It isn't easy. Today on Crypto Clarified, we're going to look at some of the new and cutting edge ideas currently being developed in the digital asset ecosystem. My name is Benjamin Dean. I'm a director in Wisentry's digital asset team. Welcome back. In this podcast, we examine the complex and fast-moving crypto space so you can navigate its various opportunities and risks. To help me with the episode today, I'm joined by David Duong, who's the head of institutional research at Coinbase. Before we start, US listeners, check out wisdomtreeprime.com in the Apple or Android app stores. Hit subscribe and share on Spotify, YouTube, or iTunes, and you can check me out on the Bird app at Benjamin Dean. Before we kick off, Jams, Sam, in compliance... Listeners, they've told me you have to listen to the disclaimer because otherwise unspeakable things will happen to me. So please listen. Before I begin, I need to state the following. To clarify the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Wisdom Tree and Coinbase and are subject to change. Anything we present in this podcast is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast research nor as investment or tax advice. Information and opinions expressed in this podcast are not a recommendation offer or solicitation by or sell any securities and reliance upon them. At the sole discretion of the listener. Please remember past performance is no indication of future results. Now we're going to move on to the fun stuff with David Duong. David Duong, Head of Institutional Research at Coinbase. David, welcome back. It's nice to see you again. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me, Ben. So today's discussion, we're going to have kind of a grab bag of different topics, but I think for the listeners, it will be interesting just to hear about how much is going on in this digital asset space, some of the more experimental things that you and I get to keep our eyes on, and some of the non-obvious things out there, because it is a complex and fast-moving space. Um, Before we kick things off, though, uh, why don't you just give the listeners a feel for kind of your background and, and what you do at Coinbase? Yeah, thanks. Um, so actually, my background's in computer science, but I've spent the last uh, 17 to 20 years actually covering uh, macroeconomics. And prior to joining Coinbase, which is about two years ago, I was actually in TradFi. Uh, I was actually covering emerging markets rates and FX, and I was previously the head of Latin America at HSBC. Very nice. Well, we're going to have tons to talk about then because we share a couple of uh, pieces in common. Uh, let's kick things off topic-wise. Uh, talking about layer twos. Now, in the show, in previous episodes, we've we've spoken with people about layer twos for Ethereum. So we don't have to go into too much detail about what they are. But it is a space that if you and I were talking 18 months ago, we probably wouldn't have covered it. It is a space that's now grown and diversified. Uh, how about you give folks kind of your snapshot about the layer two space, where it's at, and what's interesting to you? Yeah, I like that L2s or Layer 2s started out as an experiment for Ethereum as one way to scale it because prior to this, the roadmap for Ethereum really depended on sharding and trying to grow the network that way. Um, But Layer 2s have kind of uh, worked out so well that it's become part of the Ethereum roadmap. And we have the Dankun fork or the the, the Cancun fork, as some people call it, uh, that's coming up uh, very likely at the end of this month, if not early March. Um, And that's going to further expand that by putting more space on the blockchain specifically for L2s. So I think that's going to, you know, of course, reduce the fees. It's going to improve things, increase the throughput. Um, What's been really interesting is the experimentation for me, that's really happened with layer twos. So it's not just relegated to the idea of like, hey, how do we park more things on things outside of the Ethereum mainnet? It really has become, 
well, what else can we do? Can we put other virtual machines that run on these layer twos, for example? Uh, can we include ZK proofs on these things? Uh, you know, like what, what do we do to just kind of not just expand it, but, but really improve upon the current infrastructure? There's that word, zero knowledge proofs. That's super interesting. <laughs> uh, there's this kind of distinction between two kinds of doing these roll-ups, these layer twos. One's the optimistic stack and the other's the zero knowledge proofs. Do you have any kind of strong views about which stack is the one that you think might prevail, if any? Um, they are complicated at a technical level, but what is interesting is that you've got these two ways of solving the scalability problem. Um, some of them have tokens attached to them, others do not. Um, what do you think is going on there in that horse race between the two kind of wider standards that are, are competing at the moment for market share? Yeah, I would say optimistic rollups had a very strong advantage. And I think initially, you know, we were very clear about the trade-offs between what would happen with a zero knowledge uh, layer two versus an optimistic layer two. And one of that was actually being able to get your assets from, uh, you know, off chain from like the, the, the L2 itself. And, you know, the costs that you would pay for the optimistic rollups tend to be, well, I would maybe have to be unable to get access to those tokens for up to a week until we were sure that no one objected um, to the final state of things. It doesn't seem, however, that that became a real issue. And in fact, most people were just kind of keeping their assets on the L2 anyway and transacting and remaining completely on chain. Um, so I think some of that concern kind of fell by the wayside and it became much more important to just have a performant uh l2 that was cheap and that you can transact on and it didn't necessarily become as big concern to get right away to zero knowledge proofs where you wouldn't necessarily have that same trade-off but there was uh you know perhaps more expensive transactions that you might have to have on the zk because you have to pay for it somewhere so I think that this is what we've seen. There is a third option too, which is zero knowledge uh, EVMs or ZK EVMs as well, where the real benefit of that is that you would not only have EVM equivalents. So a lot of these applications that are running in Ethereum could actually just natively port themselves over to a ZK EVM um, without having to do a lot of you know translation. You know they call it like transpiler itself would actually allow that to happen very easily. Um, but you would probably capture some of the best of both worlds in a lot of ways. But we haven't necessarily seen like one of those ZK EVMs emerge as a clear winner. And, and they do exist right now. There are they're, you know, operating uh, on Ethereum. But, you know, really, it's been optimistic rollups game to lose uh, in the last probably year or so. You know, just to step back a little bit for the listener's sake here, because, you know, we, you and I follow this so closely and there's lots of jargon and acronyms and things like that. Maybe the closest historical parallel that comes to mind is either GSM CDMA for cell phones or it's Betamax VHS for, for home movies. Like you have these competing standards. They have their pros and cons. They're trying to solve a problem. And then the one that's ultimately, here's the irony, or maybe it's just the quirk of history. Uh, the ones that win in inverted commas aren't always the best on all dimensions, are they? Like Betamax was better than VHS, but VHS just ended up everywhere and won by default. Um, I understand that it's a space in flux at the moment. We've got, maybe you've mentioned three competing standards. Um, 
how are they going? And, and when I say that, I mean, you know, you've got the Ethereum base layer and a running thesis some people have had is that, well, if the transactions move up the stack, these layer twos, whichever captures all of those transactions and fees becomes the winner ultimately. Where does that sit at the moment? And are they actually eating market share off that base layer, which comes with its own transaction fees? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I like your analogy in terms of, you know, just because you have the best technology doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to become more well used by most players, you know, and we, I think the beta max versus VHS example is a good one because it's not uh, that having this pure technology itself uh, was the be all end all of it. A lot of it had to do with making that technology accessible. And that's what really happened with VHS. And that's why people used it. Um, and I'm not trying to, you know, you know, cast shade on any of these technologies, because like I said, they all have their own like strengths and weaknesses. I don't think like any of them by itself or, you know, uh, I could consider like, quote unquote, the, the more superior technology per se. But I think that what we are seeing right now and holistically, there was this concern and I, I definitely express this. I, I express this back in like middle of 2022, for example, that you would see a lot of the L2s potentially eat uh, Ethereum's lunch because could the activity that you see migrating to layer twos be dilutive to the actual activity that we see on the mainnet proper? Um, so far, we haven't seen that. You know, like we've seen that a lot of the total value bridged over uh, from the from into the L2s, I should say, actually didn't come from Ethereum but really came from other EVM chains. So mm -hmm. what we've seen, at least in the first phase of things, is that a lot of the layer twos have been capturing activity away from some of the other uh, EVM L1s out there. They're not Ethereum itself. That said, um, we have seen that in terms of the amount of ETH burned in terms of activity, and hopefully people are aware of like EIP-1559, for example, um, that allows like Ethereum, the ETH itself to be burned, like uh, depending on the level of activity, like the base fee. Um, we've seen that actually L2s went from representing around 3% of that to around 9%, 10% of that. So we have seen a, a pretty big increase. That said, a lot of what is being burned as far as ETH in terms of the fees themselves are generated by activity that happens on mainnet, about 90% of that. So, you know, it, we haven't yet seen that L2s are really kind of taking a bigger share of that and or like reducing the activity so far as like it, it actually hurts Ethereum itself. If anything, we still believe that our view of if you can grow the pie and if L2s bring on more activity, Ethereum actually benefits in the end. Okay. So for all of those institutional investor listeners out there uh, who ask me sometimes, you know, so what? Uh, it's very nice to talk about technology, but so what? Well, what Dave and I are basically analyzing here is um, the investment case for Ethereum. Um, are transactions going to process through that network? And then do people need Ether to do it? And if so, that's demand for Ether. Um, uh, David's just pointed out that uh, activities migrating from other layer ones like Solana, potentially, and others. So that changed the investment case for those other alternatives. And then there's a question of if any of these layer twos break out as the winner take all, some of them have tokens attached to them, uh, which would influence the investor case for them as well. So that's the so what on that one. It is an evolving space. It is rather interesting to watch play out. 
Um, but let's turn to the next topic because we've got so much to talk about, David. <laughs> There's so much to talk about and we don't have enough time. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts about gaming. <clears throat> now, uh, the gaming industry is bigger than US sports and Hollywood combined in terms of annual revenues. It's a massive That's industry. Right. And for years, people, well, a few years, people have been pointing at this kind of intersection between this digital asset, crypto infrastructure, and this kind of virtual world gaming thing. I haven't kept a very close eye on it recently. So I'd look to you to give us kind of a panorama of if anything is happening at that intersection still. And if so, what you think is, is kind of an interesting thing to look at. Yeah, I hopefully most people are already aware of what a big opportunity gaming represents, you know, and uh, if you don't, the numbers are like currently there's a total addressable market for the gaming industry of around $250 billion. This is, you know, not including like Web3. This is just the whole gaming industry. Um, but that is projected to grow to $390 billion over the next five years. So this is a big opportunity. Um, previously, what we've seen is that there have been existing examples uh, in the Web3 space, in the crypto space, of how uh, gaming and crypto actually intersects. A really early project here was Axie Infinity. And this was a model that initially brought up the whole play to earn kind of framework for how to incorporate gaming into crypto. Um, I, I think fortunately or unfortunately, like it wasn't necessarily very sticky because at least there was a lot of skepticism coming from mainstream gamers of like, oh man, like, of course, like, you know, like they, they, to be honest with you, you know, and there wasn't much to do in Axie Infinity, I'll be honest. I, it just, yeah. for me at least, it wasn't a very fun game, but it did show <laughs> that there was a way to monetize it and put it into crypto. I think right now there's still skepticism around that idea. So whatever next iteration of games are going to appear for Web3, I don't think it's going to be the play to earn model. It probably will be something else. And we've seen a lot of passive games kind of emerge over the last few years, but you know, no big, what would be called a triple A high quality game has necessarily materialized. It takes generally around like two to three years to come up with a high quality triple A game like that. The good thing about this is that a lot of the investments, because of Axie Infinity, a lot of that money flowed through sometime like 2021, 2022. That's when a lot of the fundraising would be done. Well, hey, that tends that that happens to be like two to three years after. This is the future now, uh, <laughs> where we are expecting like what one of those Web three games might look like. So, looking into this year, we're expecting some of those names to probably appear. Whoever that's going to be, though, I think that's really hard to tell. And so some of the ways people have looked to invest in the gaming sector has been through platforms that already include gaming in some way, like Immutable X, things like that, um, where they're trying to host that, that potential game. It's, uh, it is, it is, I've got to collect my thoughts here. <laughs> Uh, I like that point there. Yes, you've got that first generation that comes through. Um, most of them didn't work. Um, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily like it's, it's going to disappear. I'm reminded of Atari. If you had said in the late 80s when they had the big video game boom and bust and Atari was the one that was taken down because they licensed too many bad games. Um, and then you sat there and said, well, that's it for gaming. Uh, well, you would have missed one of the biggest industries in the last 20, 30 years. Um, it's got a nice story around taking it from a niche hobbyist crowd all the way through to mass adoption. 
Um, you can see people pecking away on their cell phones, on, on games on their cell phones. It's not just a, a niche thing. I, I'd feel remiss if I didn't keep at least one eye on it, because if someone does kind of crack that nut and work out something that is sustainable, fun, u- well, useful in the sense it's entertainment, then then something might come out of it. It hasn't yet. Um how is the fundraising scene for it at the moment? I mean, we know venture capital's gone down for the space broadly, but are any of these things being funded anymore? Or is it, are we just waiting for um, electronic arts to go there and, and throw some money behind it? It's still being funded. And we've seen headlines like that. Actually, you know, you, you pointed out a big one. Like there's actually a lot of uh, names out there, like both from the mobile gaming scene as well as from the like traditional gaming scene, I guess. I, I don't know what they would call it, traditional, but... Um, trad that, gaming. You know, the, <laughs> trad gaming, I guess is the term. <laughs> like this is actually a pet peeve of mine because we call it GameFi sometimes. And, and I'm like, it's not decentralized finance where it's like DeFi. <laughs> it's not gaming finance. Although I, I get why they say that because you're trying to introduce elements of like monetization, but that's that's gaming all around, right? No one builds this stuff for free, even in, in the regular uh, gaming sector. Um, but yeah, you know, you are seeing a lot of that still kind of come through. But I think that in terms of the launches that we're expecting for this year, a lot of that tends to be pre-existing VC money. I wonder if the actual angle on this is not so much, you know, putting these tokens into games, but it's just using the tokens as a fundraising mechanism. Like independent gaming is really hard, actually. And you get this kind of power law dynamic where Candy Crush goes nuts and like a thousand other games fail. Like maybe that is actually, at the end of the day, the thing that's useful, using the technology to fundraise for indie games. Maybe if they can reconcile it with securities law and whatnot, you can actually unlock some capital out there because it's. Um, we know from ICOs the technology works. Uh, we know that uh, they don't have equity rights attached to them, but they could. I mean, it's just off the top of my head, but uh, I'll be interested to see how that evolves over time. Uh, let's move on. Acronym time. D-PIN <laughs> and D-COMP. Now, a few weeks ago when I saw you and you, (laughs) so listener background, Dave and I were in Zurich the other week and we're doing a talk and David looked at me and said, Ben, what do you think about D-PIN? I was like, David, I don't know what D-PIN is. (laughs) (laughs) So so this time, instead of you asking asking me the question, I don't know the answer to, I'm going to ask you the questions, which I know you have the answer to run the listeners through the two acronyms, D-PIN and D-COMP. Uh, you might have to give them some background on like w- w- what they are, but why they've come about. Because that, from what you described the other week, is mildly interesting to me. And if it's mildly interesting to me, it's probably very interesting to other people. <laughs> so I would preface this with two things. Like the, Number one is that we think a lot about how does crypto intersect with the real world, right? One mm-hmm. of the big themes that people talk about with that is tokenization. And it is, it's a major theme in terms of trying to like take, um, I don't know, property or art, which is harder, but more likely treasuries and other securities and tokenize it and put it on chain. But I think another way we're thinking about how the real world intersects with that, uh, with, with crypto and blockchain technology is DPIN. And that kind of brings me to the second point, because oftentimes when we think about, uh, you know, crypto, we think about Web3 and how that's going to change the Internet or Web 2.0 as far as 
a lot of web two analogs that already exist. What I mean by that is oftentimes we're kind of iterating on things that are already like are there. Social media, for example, how do we change that and make it uniquely crypto and kind of put it on a blockchain, for example. And we are seeing some of that happen today. Like Farcaster is a really good example of that, where it's kind of like a Twitter. Um, but what you're doing with that instead is saying like, let's introduce new things that you couldn't do with, uh, with Twitter. Let's put frames on there so that people can play games, for example, or kind of put it like, you know, uh, a web page, like kind of, uh, kind of user interface inside of a social net media network, you know? So gaming is another example of that payments, which I'm sure like people are very familiar with. These are all what I would consider like web two analogs and making them better in some way, shape or form. That's great. Dpin, however, and decomp uh, or decentralized compute, I think are ways of actually being very uniquely crypto from the ground up. So with that, I'm going to introduce Dpin, which stands for decentralized physical infrastructure networks. And that's a very long phrase, which is why we've shortened it down to like deep in. But what it really means is incentivizing the supply and demand dynamics that allow us to build physical infrastructure. And that physical infrastructure can be anything. It could be telecommunications networks. It could be data storage. It could be mapping. Um, an example we, I brought up uh, with Ben in Zurich is there's something called Hive Mapper out there. And what they, they kind of do is incentivize people to put mobility sensors on their cars. So you're probably already familiar with Google Maps or some sort of mapping service that you have on your phone right now. Mm -hmm. The way they did it was, you know, Google sent a bunch of cars out onto the road and they had cameras and they just recorded everything. So why not do that in a decentralized way? And you might say, well, why do it a decentralized way? Because the reason is a centralized entity like Google isn't necessarily going to go out there to like all the streets that have like bad lighting and isn't a major epicenter where people live or isn't a major city where people want to live. So there are just places out there that have just gone unmapped. Well, what if you just incentivize people to say like, you know what, take the sensor, put it in your car, drive around and earn some tokens while you're at it. Like that is the idea behind Hive Mapper. And they built enough of a, uh, of a platform right now that you can actually start, you know, earning money also by using this, this map. So I think that what we've seen historically is that a lot of this was people kind of thinking like, well, let's, let's create the supply for this stuff. Now, I think what we saw in 2023 was this transition away from saying just the supply side of the equation to saying like, how do we incentivize people to actually use this stuff? Because we've got a good product. We want people to use it now. Like, let's, let's build that out. And that's where decentralized um, or deep end rather kind of comes from having decentralized solutions to like kind of the, the real world things that we've seen kind of kind of exist and interacting with the real world in some way to incentivize people to build and use this stuff. All right, before we go to decomp, I have two questions. One of them is, well, so what decentralized? You know, so why does it have to be decentralized? Why is that a good thing? Uh, was that better than like a better mousetrap? I don't know, so I ask. The second has to do with where, where does the money come from, right? So yeah, you can create tokens and you can put them out there and you can hand them to people for doing stuff, but I, <laughs> does that mean the token has a non-zero value? I don't know. Um, and then, you know, who is paying whom to do what and where are they getting the money? And they're two broad questions where they come straight to mind. And I look to you for some even partial answers because it's happening. I, I just don't fully, I haven't got my head fully wrapped around it. 
So I will say that I'm not an apologist for all of the technology that's out there. I don't necessarily think, for example, everything in the world needs to be decentralized. Like personally, I think that there are certain things where if there's enough trust out there, you know, like I have a friend who works in supply logistics, for example, and I talked to him about this topic of like, well, like I asked him directly, do we need supply chains to be like on the blockchain, for example, because in my mind, it would make a lot of sense, you know, like buyers, sellers connected. We know like what the, like the, the path is from like origin to like destination of like all the stuff. And he told me, no, because I trust a lot of like the vendors I use. Like we, we just can have like a central like a uh, database and we all can rely upon it and it's fine. And I didn't realize that, you know, like I, I, in my mind, I was like, no, oh, clearly this is a place for blockchain to innovate. Um, and in his view, he's like, not really, because the whole point of having things on a blockchain is the trustlessness of that. And if you already trust the counterparties you're with, I think there will be a point in time if onboarding new counterparties and things like that. But when it comes to things like Deepin, a lot of it tends to be how much resilience do we need in these networks? How much resilience do we need, say, like if we have, let's just take a very simple example of like Web3. Right now we rely, or I'm sorry, the internet as we, as we use things. Right now, we rely a lot on our actual like service providers, right? So if I'm actually doing this, I, I use Verizon Files, for example. Like I require Verizon Files to kind of provide me, like, and, and I interact with that. My internet service provider, I, my ISP, is integral to that. But you know, there's a lot that could be either blocked or like infrastructure that can kind of go down. And we've seen that in the world, for example, you have countries that put up firewalls that don't allow you to get certain content from certain parts of the world. What if there was a decentralized way where that information couldn't be blocked because it's decentralized and it couldn't be centrally disturbed by any large entities? Would that be of value? I think it would be, for example. That's kind of what the DPIN movement represents. Like how much resilience and how much like tolerance do we have for uh, these entities or these networks being blocked by some centralized uh, company, some centralized entity in some way. If you believe that there should be, and you believe access shouldn't be blocked, then you should believe that DPIN has value. That's kind of where I come from. Okay. I can see a situation, well, I take your point on resiliency. That is something that from a distributed network you get. There's no single point of failure, no central choke point. I'm not sure how that maps onto all the DPIN stuff, but I can see kind of where you end up with these kind of common goods almost some people might call them public goods where nobody really owns it it exists it's it's a way to coordinate people and their resources without a central authority and maybe you can come up with something that's better on certain dimensions than that which exists now it's um i can see it happening out there and i see people experimenting it's just not fully clear to me the business model over time. I might be missing something. I mean, that I, was just one example in terms of resiliency. There's also yeah. ways where like they've used, like, okay, so a big, pretty big project that kind of, I, I wouldn't say kickstarted, but definitely one of the, one of the early projects in DeepIn was Helium, for example. Mm -hmm. And they've iterated now through their business model. So it's a little bit different from when it started. But when it started, 
what it was trying to do was actually take advantage of all the like network there's, you know, people are familiar with networks and that we, we operate on a spectrum, for example, and there are certain bands that are just free and, and don't get used because they're not used for anything. The early way helium was kind of created was that they would want to take advantage of those bands that weren't being used in order to promote the internet of things. Uh, re remember when we went to like have everything like connected, like um, on, on in some sort of network, but you didn't want to connect it. <laughs> <laughs> which by the way, it turned out wasn't the best thing to have my microwave connected to my internet. But regardless, <laughs> um, that was one of the, the, the prospects that they had of like, well, how do we build out the internet of things? Well, what if we incentivize people to put little routers on like in their, their homes or in different places, for example, to spread out the, like that, that network so the latency wouldn't be as high and you could actually connect all these things. So, I mean, there were some very unique initial cases now, like I said, Helium has since expanded beyond that, and they connected themselves to a 5G network, et cetera. But there are also very unique ways that DPIN is being utilized to actually make materialize those, those kind of use cases. Yeah, I've heard about distributed grids for a while. Power Ledger, I think they were called a few years ago. Coincidentally enough, a bunch of Australians. Um, the iCore idea was there. They couldn't commercialize it, but to bring it back to the listeners uh if you're looking at cutting edge emerging technology and you can't do venture capital or angel investment but you think there might be something there that's potentially disruptive in the future well here, here you go here's the opportunity here's where you start waiting it lots of experimentation i could see the utility from a common goods perspective and for providing things that just wouldn't exist because they can't be funded but let's move on to the last one because it's another one that i don't know about but you do <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing we have you on the podcast today, David. Uh, Restaking. Now, uh, the listeners know about staking in context of Ethereum. Um, there's this term that I've seen. I saw it in your annual report. And listeners, go check out David's 2024 Outlook report at Coinbase because it's very good. Uh, you mentioned restaking. And then uh, you and I have talked before about something called Eigenlayer. Um, that's right. Very new stuff. I don't fully get it, but I need your help. <laughs> okay. What is right. what is restaking? Uh, why why are people doing it? Why do they think that's something that deserves time and energy and resources? And then what is Eigenlayer and how does it kind of all fit together? Yeah, I think this is going to be a big one, especially in 2024. <laughs> I, I, but then that's it. I did say the same thing in 2023, and we were still kind of on the, on the path. I think that like we'll finally see it kind of materialize, though, in terms of the actual benefits to Ethereum and, and Ether holders themselves. Um, now that said, of course, like oftentimes you, would, in order to get the full benefits of restaking, because the idea is that I get paid for actually using the stake I have as a validator to secure other things. So my okay. the yield, technically, I will only accrue it if I actually, um, you know, if I actually opt in to restaking. But I think that there's a benefit to broader holders as well. But anyway, let me kind of start from the beginning because I went on a whole tangent before I got to the point. <laughs> um, but restaking is effectively what I would call security as a service. So right now on Ethereum, if like if you're a validator, for example, what do you sell as a layer one, you're selling block space. That's the idea. That's that's your main source of revenue, right? Like I like people want to put things on the network 
They want to put things on chain, as we say, in uh, crypto parlance. And uh, we are selling that. But, you know, we don't really diversify away from that business model. Restaking is one way that we could, we as validators, I should say, validators being the ones who actually secure the network uh, through mm -hmm. their activities, uh, can actually have another source of revenue. So not only am I selling the block space, but now I am actually also selling the security itself. I do that by saying that the 32 ETH that I use to kind of, uh, to uh, that I put in a, basically as collateral in order to kind of opt in to be a validator to secure the network, I can use that to actually secure other things. And what are those other things? Those things could be data availability layers. They could be bridges. They could, in fact, be other networks entirely, uh, which is something that was kind of outside of scope in the initial like kind of uh, imaginings of Eigenlayer and now is, is definitely well within it. Um, so you can actually delegate that staked position to what we would call actively validated services. So these other things, these middleware layers, these potentially even applications or other networks um, and actually say like, I will secure that so that instead of you having to do it yourself and like, you, you know, like having to actually come up with like a whole validator network in order to support it, I'll do it. And you'll pay me for that service. So you pay me using the 32 ETH I already have to secure the network. So if you're an ETH validator an Ethereum validator, not only am I getting the base fee, as well as, uh, well, I'm sorry, yeah, like the, the the tips rather that that come from the transactions themselves. So not the base fee that gets burned. Excuse me, misspoke. misspoke. Uh, but not only do you get paid from the transactions themselves, uh, but also I might get paid, let's say, something from MEV. I might also get paid something from restaking. My yield can actually increase very quickly from the base yield that we get today of like three and a half, four percent to upwards of multiples of that. So I think that is the real value that kind of comes from uh, from Eigenlayer. And not only does the validator then get paid, but also we are potentially securing things that would be otherwise fairly onerous to actually incorporate into Ethereum itself. All right, so you don't have to go and bootstrap your own new network in essence, you use the existing network and what are validators, the computers? And you tell the computers, well, you keep validating the Ethereum network, but we're going to use this critical mass and you're going to start computers, you're going and you're doing other work, which involves securing other networks by leveraging the pre-existing infrastructure that's sprouted up for Ethereum. Is that and close? It's, it, that's actually, that's absolutely right. But I will make a point that you do have to understand two things. Number one, this is not without its risks because, okay. of course, as a validator, you have something called slashing. And if you do not perform your duties as a validator, you get slashed, which means if you're down for too long a period of time. And, you know, some people ask me, like, well, does that mean that if I go on vacation, I'm going to get slashed? It's like, not necessarily. And if it does happen, it's going to be very, very minor. You know, your slashing mm -hmm. risk yeah. as a validator today is, to be fair, fairly limited. You know, um, even if you're running your own node, but potentially your val your slashing risk as a restaking uh, at when you opt into restaking could be much higher. And that kind of brings me to the second point. It's not without like there. This isn't completely low risk because as a validator, like you kind of just like learn how to run the software, and, and for the most part, you're fine. But like you might be asked to do something more 
in order to secure uh, an AVS. And I, I don't, it, you know, it, it will differ by AVS, um, by which service you opt into and choose to kind of support. Um, but you will, it, it's all incumbent on you to learn how to do that. So it's not without like, there is a learning curve that has to be like done in order to actually take advantage of Eigenlayer. Okay. Okay. Um, so for listeners, if you think the Ethereum network is going to end up becoming almost a base layer for a set of distributed systems, the uses of which are, are being invented or haven't been invented yet, uh, you buy Ether and you stake it. And then as David says, you can do this restaking to be rewarded for telling your computers to do more work. <laughs> but if you think that it, the Ethereum network is going to become this base layer for all kinds of other things out there, then that, that's it builds up basically the ecosystem for Ethereum network, the stability and the security of the network. It starts to fade into the background a little bit and it just becomes like digital infrastructure uh, that sits in the back of the scenes but is resilient and strong enough to survive. Um, thank you for that explanation. I know it's a complicated topic, but it's definitely one to keep an eye on because if somebody works out a way to leverage that Ethereum network uh, and the power of it, for other purposes, then that can create other opportunities down the line. But I also appreciate you pointing out the the, the risks because there's always trade-offs involved um, as these things evolve over time. There's no we are coming much. up on time, though. I know that we could speak for hours, but we, we've only got so much time. Uh, we've just spent the last half an hour talking about the future, which I love doing. Uh, so we're not going to close this episode by asking you to tell us about the future because we've just done it. Uh, Outside of the topics we've just run through and from where you sit in your role at Coinbase, is there any one last thing that you find interesting that we haven't covered that the listeners might also find interesting? So I think that a big theme is still going to be the intersection of AI and crypto. And, you know, like in part, that kind of brings us back to the DFID movement or decentralized yeah. compute movement. I mean, these are these are not unrelated topics. I still think it's it's very hard to express uh, AI within the blockchain, um, but we yeah. are seeing projects that are are coming up and and that are doing so. Um, I think it's going to be interesting because I think the future of AI itself is probably going to be more of people actually training the models on our personal data. Um, so it's right now we're training it on like the internet and all this other other stuff. But I think we're going to start seeing the AI. We're going to make it more uh, in tune with our personal needs, and I think having like privacy enablement uh, through blockchain technology is one way we're going to see that. So I think that's going to be a very big theme as well into the future. Okay. Yeah, it's a bit of a buzzword thing, isn't it? But if you kind of break down, you know, we're talking about open source software. So there's that commonality. We're watching people fight it out right now for the copyright over the, the training sets, essentially. Um, I could see a world in which you use these networks, distributed networks to um, recompense people um, for, for data. Um, it's maybe you don't store the data on a blockchain and you don't do the computations on a blockchain. That's, that's separate. But I can see a world in which, going back to the idea of common goods, knowledge is a, pu is a public good. Um, and if you start unpicking that and thinking about incentive systems and using this distributed technology as a way to incentivize certain behavior, I could see a world in which there's kind of niche cases there for something that's not training data controlled by massive conglomerates. Um, 
and is something that does emerge as being a more public good than what you see from like OpenAI, for instance. Um, that's kind of interesting. Thank you for that. Um, yeah. That's been a great discussion. I know we could keep going longer and longer and longer, but I'm sure in the future we'll have many <laughs> other opportunities to do so because there's never a shortage of new things to talk about in this space. Uh, with that, David, I thank you once again, and I look forward to seeing you again very soon. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ben. And there you have it, folks. David Duong, Head of Institutional Research at Coinbase, for a very long and stimulating discussion about cutting-edge trends in the digital asset space. U.S. listeners, wisdomtreeprime.com. Check it out, Apple or Android app stores. Check me out at Benjamin Dean on the Bird app. Thank you again for listening, and I'm looking forward to seeing you again next time.